to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. No battle with the American Civil War has been the subject of more books than Gettysburg. It has been looked at from seemingly every imaginable angle, and yet just as a circle consists of an infinite number of points around a center, there are an infinite number of perspectives from which to view the Battle of Gettysburg or any historical event for that matter. Tonight, we'll view the battle through the eyes of a war correspondent and his son, an artillery officer, as presented by author Chuck Rosh in Imperfect Union, a father's search for his son in the aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg. Join us for our discussion on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from back in the friendly confines of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, where Civil War Talk Radio normally originates, but not speaking for the university, not speaking for anyone but myself, and my guests will do the same. We're all operating independently on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh I forgot to mention last week that this is the year of 1,000 likes on the uh, the Civil War Talk Radio calendar, and by not mentioning it, we lost some momentum. So uh, we're we're somewhere around 780 something on Facebook. So go to Facebook or have a young relative show you how to go to Facebook and like the page Impediments of War, where you can learn about who's going to be on the show and all kinds of things. Meanwhile, it's a cold night in February, 2017. It's February is the big sports month of the year. Everybody knows. Uh, for years, of course, the the Super Bowl played in February has conflicted with the 
other major event of the month, the Wilmington Winter Classic Men's Over 50 Soccer Tournament. So this year, the uh, the National Football League moved the Super Bowl back a week to uh, split up the two events so we could concentrate on each one in turn. And uh, that meant this past week was the soccer tournament and you will be glad to know the Greenville Stars Senior Varsity. Uh, while not winning the tournament, we won two games, lost one, and tied one. It was very satisfying. Uh, no major injuries, a few cramps, a few pulled hamstrings. But we all managed to drive home and get to work Monday. So overall, a victory for the Stars. It was it was very satisfying. I directed a headed ball toward the net. I think for the first time in my life, I usually play further back the field and actually uh, headed a, a shot on goal, something I'd never done in my entire life. That was a big moment. It didn't go in, but I had a couple of assists. Good tournament. Back on campus uh, this past week saw two very uh, interesting interactions of uh, the real world and the history world. At our faculty meeting last week, the uh, I should say the, these two, exam- two, two incidents are both examples of well-intended uh, official programs, government programs that have a worthy uh, object, but that over time grow beyond their original bounds. One of them happened at our faculty meeting. ECU sent its export information compliance officer to speak to us. Most of us didn't know there was such a position. Uh, We found out, as historians, we wanted to know how it started, that back in the early days of the Cold War, the federal government began guarding what kind of information academics shared with each other so that nuclear physicists weren't sending uh, interesting experimental data to a collaborator in uh, uh, Moscow who was not using it for a journal article but to build a bomb. So there's a reason not to uh, send sensitive data to countries that might threaten us. That all made sense to us. But there's not much of a limit on the program. We found out that uh, if I invite, say, Richard Carradine from Oxford uh, in the UK to come speak on this program, as I've done, technically I'm supposed to inform the compliance officer that I'm having uh, some kind of interaction with a foreign national well, all of us in the department do that all the time through email and other ways, and we were really kind of taken aback by how uh, how vast the compliance officers' uh, powers were to oversee what we were doing. On the other hand, uh, the other story has a better ending. <clears throat> the government also, uh, since the early days of the 20th century when things were not done correctly in this regard, now oversees uh, any research involving human, human subjects. You can no longer inject uh, unknowing victims with diseases just to see how they react. Uh, appropriately, the government protects us from having that happen. The problem was that human subject research has been defined very broadly, and in the 1990s it included oral history. So if a grad student of mine wants to write about the uh, controversy over the monument that was not installed at the Bentonville battlefield in 1995, and he interviews someone who participated in that controversy, he has to go through the Institutional Review Board first and fill out these forms and 
explain to people on the board who tend to be medical people why this it's safe to interview this person. It won't cause the person to have a bad reaction, maybe remember something unpleasant. I don't know. Uh, and the forms are all completely inappropriate to historical research. Uh, the, the student has to explain how the anonymity of the subject will be protected. Well, the subject is going to have his or her name in the title of the book or the paper. It's, it's about somebody. That's why we're interviewing them. They're not going to be protected at all. That's historical research. The good news is the government decided last month to finally, after a 10-year struggle by the American Historical Association, to take oral history research out of the category of human subject research and keep the focus where it belongs on medical uh, or, or behavioral research, not on individual interviews. So starting, I think, in 2018, we can once again interview people from the past without fear. I don't have too many Civil War subjects left alive to interview, obviously, but there really are many people who remember events related to the Civil War, to the centennial, to its commemoration, and no longer do we have to go through the IRB. So happy news there. Also happy news, good shows are coming up. Next week, Christopher Phillips uh, will tell us about the remaking of the American Middle Border. Uh, the title of the book is The Rivers Ran Backward. On, and that's a listener's suggestion, so you can blame someone else if it doesn't work out. On the first day of March, Andrew Budsoe will be with us with a book about uh, volunteer officers in the war. We'll take a week off for spring break on March 8th, come back on the 15th with Carol Reardon, longtime military historian, now approaching retirement. Uh, joining us, we'll talk about many of her works, including uh, a book on military thought in the Civil War North. And then possibly a week off after that, there may be a lecture on campus that I need to attend uh, that evening. But just to give you uh, a few teasers for the following weeks, the end of March into April, uh, two more shows just lined up, and we'll get the specific dates to you shortly. Uh, James Conroy returns to Civil War Talk Radio with his book that has won the Lincoln Prize, or uh, a half of the Lincoln Prize this year. It's called Lincoln's White House, The People's House in Wartime, and I'm very much looking forward to reading that. And another book just out, this one from UNC Press uh, by Judy Giesberg, who has also been on the show before. And her new one is entitled Sex and the Civil War, Soldiers, Pornography, and the Making of American Morality. As I said when I wrote to her to be on the show, I don't see, you know, take the most popular topic in historical publishing, Civil War, the most popular topic in any publishing, sex, put them together. Nah, no one's going to buy it. Uh, Maybe she'll, well, who knows, she may have a mansion by the time uh, that show comes around. So enough chit-chat. Go to impedimentsofwar.org to find out more. Click on the donation button and the PayPal button. Donate to the show. Help uh, with the purchase of books. Or this month, uh, help with the purchase of fuel because our furnace broke down a couple days ago. It hasn't been too cold yet in North Carolina, but I'm reduced to burning old student blue books now and uh, may need more. Well, that's enough. That's not de tax deductible either. Uh, it's just my own, my own use. 
Let's get on to the show. Let us talk about the Battle of Gettysburg, 1863. More books about this battle than any other. Uh, room for a new one. Uh, author Chuck Rosh believes there is. Let's talk to him and find out what this is about. Uh, Chuck, are you there? I am here. Welcome to the show. Yes, uh, congratulations on the Greenville Stars. Uh, sorry about the furnace. Well, thank you. Yes, the stars uh, uh, kept me warm at heart, even as as uh, the house grew colder. But it's the thing about living in the South. It's not like if it were Michigan, you know, we'd have the furnace replaced the next day with whatever tin can the first salesman brought to us. But uh, here we can we can survive a few days. Indeed. Well, let me ask let me ask you uh, a, a starting question. Yep. Uh, uh, you're your book is about a war correspondent and his son, and according mm-hmm. to the uh, back of the book, uh, you yourself uh, are a journalist. Tell us about your day job. What? Uh... I am a national correspondent um, in, in the Washington, D.C. Bureau for the St. Louis <clears throat> Post-Dispatch, meaning I cover Congress and the White House and federal agencies for uh, the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Pre- previous to that, I, I'd spent many years as a political columnist and national political reporter uh, for the uh, USA Today and Gannett Company. So uh, there, there's a, a connection there. Uh, we're going to take a short break a little early tonight, and we've not yet got into the book, but we're going to have to take our first break just a minute early. We'll come back and talk about Imperfect Union, the father's search for his son in the aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg by Chuck Roche. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. 
That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Chuck Rosh, author of Imperfect Union, The Father's Search for His Son in the Aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, as you heard in the introduction, it's, on the one hand, another book about Gettysburg, but much more than that. This is a book about Gettysburg. It's about military correspondence in the Civil War. It's about a father and a son. It's about the press and politics, nativism anti-immigrant sentiment, technology, uh, a book with an underlying uh, strong message about war throughout, all these things. Uh, so, Chuck, how, how did you get to the initial story of the, uh, the father and son, Sam and, and, and Bard Wilkeson? Well, it's something you... that's always been inter- of interest to me, and it seems to be mm-hmm. always sort of a, a paragraph or two in a lot of the overview, sort of the 30,000-foot views of of uh, Gettysburg, you know, the mention of, oh, by the way, this correspondent came and wrote one of the, lar- what was, what was considered one of the best uh, cor- correspondent dispatches of the war um, after he had been searching for his uh, son. And so, you know, it was, it's a compelling story in and of itself on its face, but I thought there was a lot more there in what it represented, both in war correspondency, but also in this whole issue of sacrifice in the, in the midst of this war. And, and it seemed to, you know, sort of revolve all around this pretty spectacular event, um, obviously the three days there, and one family's uh, experience in it. And the idea was to spin out from that, both into the story of the history of war correspondence, but also the story of what happened not during the battle, but what happened after the Battle of Gettysburg in those days and hours afterwards when literally thousands of people from all over the the map uh, came looking for loved ones um, on the battlefield. That, that's there have been a couple books dealing with the aftermath of Civil War battles in the last few years. I don't know. I haven't had uh, uh, haven't had all their authors on the show here, but mm-hmm. they uh, uh, it is a new angle that that twenty years ago you couldn't find one, and now there are multiple ones, all of them with a different approach, a different idea. Yeah. Whenever somebody thinks you know the Civil War has played out, no more topics. Uh, something like that happens. Well, Always I can tell you on new. that point. If if you take yeah. the point on it, um, the, the the idea for this book actually spawned when I was at Gettysburg researching a 150th anniversary story for USA Today. It was one of my last assignments there before I left them to write this book, and I ran into a couple from uh, Vermont and their their middle aged son. They were in their 70s, and he was in his 40s, and they were. They were retracing the steps of a an ancestor who was killed on the third day in Culp's Hill, um, and they and, and to me that was the moment that sort of galvanized my thought about this. That the story of Gettysburg going forward, because honestly, when I when I got in the assignment, I thought, what what more can be written about Gettysburg? And I concluded after talking to them that the aftermath of war is not immediate; it's forever. And they have this family had been talking for years and years and years through generations as they passed this diary down how their family had been, would have been so much different had this young man who was killed there who by all accounts had this great promise was a great young man was liked by everyone a lot of people thought he was going a long way in his life and his life ends there on, on the, at dawn on, on Culp's Hill on July 3rd 
And so I thought, you know, that, that in and of itself, to me, it, it was the new angle of Gettysburg. It's, it, it's, it's the fact of what carries forward um, in, in just average American families. Uh, it, it's uh, it is an angle that that emerges throughout the book. It I, one thing that I was really intrigued by in the book was the the rhetorical or, or stylistic strategy. There are a lot of short chapters. Yeah. Uh, uh, often a book will have you know half a dozen chapters, uh, maybe uh, uh, you know fifteen. Uh, there are fifty chapters here, but mm-hmm. they're all short. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not a, it's not a a, a giant book uh, to intimidate mm-hmm. the reader, and so the topic jumps around. Uh, it's almost a postmodern approach. There are flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are there are uh, look aheads in in every chapter. Did you set out to write that way, or did the story just present itself that way? I, I set out to write that way for a couple of reasons. One is I think that's how people. Uh, experience war. Um, I, I believe in war. You have the same sort of, um, you know, you have the same sort of experiences that you have in this sort of literary exercise that I do here. That you do have. You do look back. You do look ahead. You do look forward. And so, in, for instance, in the chapter of of the of the, that, that talks about the Eleventh Corps going into Gettysburg, it um, you know you know it, it focuses on both on. That what was going on immediately there and, and the kinds of conditions that the men were in, but it also focused, it also stepped back and said, you know, it talked a little, it talks a little bit about how, you know, certain men react when they go into this. Uh, you know, the men that are the most, um, out, you know, outlandish and are, are more ebullient about what they're going to do are often the, the ones that end up being the shirkers, and it's the quiet 19 year old that, uh, you know, that, that, that becomes the hero two hours later, and so I, I kind of wanted to do it that way. The other thing that I think also uh, I wanted to do is, frankly, I'm writing to a large degree about a war correspondent, and a war correspondent's body of work, by the nature of the way that the, 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 uh, the profession works, is not a book at the end. It's a series of dispatches, and so that's exactly why I wanted to do that, and um, that's, what we're, you know, that's what we try to do with the book. Well, let's talk about the the war correspondent, the, yeah. the character uh, yeah. Sam Wilkinson. What uh, uh, did you find yourself drawn to him as a fellow professional? Yes, he's he's um, his courage, um, in particular under fire, but mainly his persistence and courage in, in fighting through two very serious illnesses to do this was uh, was really impressive to me. Um, the other thing that was impressive to me was his his absolute devotion to the story. Um, and even though you know it was it was an age in which newspapers were were the political press to a larger degree than they are today. Mm-hmm. In the end, he was always about the story. And the other thing that impressed me about the guy was he evolved um, through the war himself, like the country evolved through the war. And his feelings about the war were different in the beginning than they were at the end, obviously for reasons of both personal, but, but also I think professional as well, too. He, 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 he had a very keen observation and knowledge, I think, and, and awareness that he was, he was helping to invent a profession because this really was certainly the first American war, and except for the Crimean War and to some degree the Mexican War, the first war any place where really there was a lot of war correspondence covering it in the, sort of the immediacy that the telegraph had brought to that age. That's an interesting point. You you tell some interesting stories about how uh, he and his other 
fellow correspondents got their stories uh, to the paper back in New York or wherever they were reporting for. Right. There were some really remarkable examples of that. Yeah. And the, the, the intrepidness of, of the way that they went about their work and sometimes even the deviousness because it was a co- competitive thing. There's a passage in there about, uh, as you know, there's a passage in there about how a correspondent tied up a, 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 an entire telegraph line for almost an entire day to keep his fellow competitors off the uh, telegraph um, simply by paying the telegraph operator to type out the, um, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers of the Bible. And, um, <laughs> and so, you know, there, there are modern-day parallels to that. There have been episodes like that in the, in the most recent past. But it, it's pretty interesting. Um, the one thing I, 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 I hope I drove home in the book is how much the telegraph had changed American communications and, frankly, American society. I posit in the book that it had changed American society as much as the Internet has changed society the last 20 years in, in this globe. And, um, and you know, this, the expectations of hearing about what was happening had changed almost overnight with, with the advent of the telegraph. And it, that's only 15 years before the war starts. And, um, you know, so you've got, you know, I mean, I, I, the, the, the much, you know, sort of used line that, you know, the Treaty of Ghent that ends the War of 1812 is signed before the final battle of the War of 1812 because it took so long for the news of the battle in New Orleans to get up to Washington. Um, whereas, you know, you had people 40 years later from Gettysburg and other battlefields literally filing from the field. Yeah, the, the news is immediate and has this yeah. impact that uh, your story of all the uh, civilians, relatives of the soldiers who are wounded or killed in the battle, they yeah. hear about it before the battle's even over, and they start right. from their homes to try to come to uh, care for or retrieve the bodies of their, their loved ones. Mm-hmm. That could never have happened in an earlier war. No. Uh, and and the, let, me, let me push it in a slightly different direction. The, yeah. the interaction of the correspondents and the military and the government uh, with the telegraph, you, you tell a story where uh, a, a reporter goes out and helps actually repair the telegraph himself and then he's using it and the military says since you fixed it it's it's yours can we use it to contact the White House uh, when you're done and and really remarkable interaction yeah it really was and the other thing is really you've got to remember this is before the the advent of public relations and public affairs so there were no press secretaries no media people running around this was direct interaction between the people covering the war and literally the people running the war. Um, you know, there was more access to Lincoln than there is to the White House press secretary today for most correspondents back then. And when Sam Wilkinson arrived at the, gas, at, the, at the Battle of Gettysburg on the first day, one of the first people he runs into is General Howard, who is, you know, the commander of the 1st and 11th Corps uh, mm-hmm. after Reynolds is killed. And, uh, you know, he spends an hour interviewing him. And, uh, you know, there's no public relations person sitting around telling him what he can and can't answer. And so it's a lot more direct journalism, frankly, probably a lot more direct history as a result. It, that does show through throughout the book the implicit comparison to contemporary wars and the relationship of the press and the military. Sometimes, uh, I know you would use the verb embed for a, yeah. a correspondent embedded yeah. with a unit, yeah. which you know is a 21st century term. These guys weren't 
embedded in the sense that they were assigned it anywhere. They they no. went wherever they wanted. Right. Right. And uh, uh, and and yet there were attempts by the some generals to uh, to restrict that. And you talk about how that doesn't go well for the generals when they try it. it well, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it does. I mean. For Meade, it, it was sort of a mixed bag. Meade made his point mm-hmm. on one gen, one correspondent who reported something he didn't like by sending him on a camp backwards on a mule and within range of Confederate sharpshooters. Um, but on the other hand, basically, the, as a result of that and, and other other things, uh, you know, the the press started writing Meade out of a, a lot of their stories, even after Gettysburg and even after he'd been removed as the um, you know the commanding general of the of the army. Um, and so, you know, it was sort of a mixed bag for him. But, you know, there were, there, were, there were press lovers and press haters in that era among the military hierarchy, just like there, like there are today. So. There's also, you mentioned the political press, uh, which is the redundancy in the Civil War era. They're all yeah. political. Yep. Uh, every paper is known to be a, a Whig or later a Republican right. paper or it's a Democratic paper. Right. Or a know nothing paper, so uh, so Wilkinson is a political figure in his own right, and he he seems to know everybody in Washington, uh, right up to and including the president. Yes, he's married to Elizabeth Cady Stanton's sister. Um, so there's there's you know already in in, in his family um, there's already activism. Although his wife uh, his wife Kate is not nearly as active on suffrage suffrage uh, movement uh, activity and and anti-slavery and the other thing as, as her famous sister was but so he's already got that in the family his um his father was a very active political figure um and a very big anti-slavery person and whatever so he's already got that in his blood and then he goes to work for for Greeley who is you know probably one of the most political editors who ever lived um in America and for a while before he leaves Greeley under you know, under uh, a major disagreement on how the war is being prosecuted, and goes to the New York Times, whose whose editor is is also pretty pro Lincoln, but and runs a newspaper that that's not afraid to criticize Lincoln when things are going badly. So, but you're right; he is he's very much a political figure. He even ran for office once himself, um, and uh, and I think I think he has knowledge of that. But like I said earlier, I think in the bottom line of of Sam Wilkinson was, you know, getting the story and getting it as right as he could, irrespective of where it, it, would, uh, it would fall, to the point where sometimes Greeley would run editor's notes uh, at the top of his story saying, look, uh, we don't necessarily agree with what he's writing, but this is what he's seeing, and he's the most accurate one out there. And, and so, you know, here, here's his dispatch. Well, an example of that uh, you give is from the, the Peninsula Campaign in 1862, yeah. uh, when... Uh, Sam's nephew is uh, a Union yeah. soldier who's killed in battle, yeah. and Wilkinson blames this on, on General David Burney and mm-hmm. says that it's Burney's you know leadership caused this needless death. Yeah. and the two of them have a a feud that becomes public in, in a way that we it's hard to imagine today. It really is. It, it, this is where I think public relations would tamp it down, but. That feud between Bernie and um, and Sam Wilkinson, which actually led to the court martial uh, and, and acquittal, but court martial of Bernie um, really uh, went right up to the Battle of, of Gettysburg. It, I think there were ex- really nasty exchanges in in public in the um, in both the New York Times and I believe the Tribune um, between the two of them, leading almost right almost up to ju- that July of 1863. And this is, of course. 
the Battle of uh, Seven Pines was what, 15 months before that. So it, it had dragged out for a long, long time. And it was some nasty stuff, <laughs> you know, questioning each other's uh, patriotism and manhood. And, um, you know, um, Bernie questions whether or not uh, that Sam Wilkinson's uh, judgment has been clouded because of the death of his nephew. And, and you know, it gets really per- So we think, you know, today we're, we're personal and nasty. That was some personal and nasty stuff that was going on between two of them with the consequences of, you know, of what was going on in the Civil War. It, the, uh, and the idea that, that Bernie was court-martialed based on these charges brought by a civilian reporter, not, not yeah. literally brought, but raised, right. is, is, right. is, is just remarkable. Right. Yeah, the, and, and he, uh, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie remarks on that. He says that's, I don't, I, what, what, what's the country coming to that, we, that I can get court-martialed based on allegations made by a, a civilian? So, but he was. No, the... the uh, the next battle that you talk about in some detail after the mm-hmm. Peninsula campaign is Battle of Chancellorsville, May 1863. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because by this time, uh, Sam's son is uh, engaged, is, mm-hmm. is uh, now in an artillery unit. Talk a little bit about him and his background. Uh, about Bayard? Yes, please. Bayard, Bayard is uh, 17 years old and joins the uh, Union Army after the Battle of Balls Bluff. Uh, which was obviously one of the first real moments of uh, reckoning in the North, where, you know, after, particularly after the first Bull Run, first Manassas, um, you know, the, 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 it was starting to sink in that this was going to take a lot more. Um, you know, a very good friend of Lincoln's was killed at Ball's Bluff, as you know, and so there was a real, real serene kind of feeling and a, and a real down feeling in the country right after that. And I, I think, although it, it wasn't clear in my research, but it, it looks very apparent that the reason why this young man joined was because he was seeing the consternation in both, you know, in the adults around him and his parents and whatever. And at 17, it wasn't unusual, but it was somewhat, you know, not necessarily um, every day, but not unusual for somebody 17 to join. But then he's automatically made an officer um, by his father's connections to, you know, higher higher ups. Um, in a uh, in a battery of uh, of McClellan's uh, army, at, and then he spends the first part of his life, you know, in in, in the military at the peninsula, almost dying. What I think was from dysentery um, down there, and then um, he's uh, he participates in, in the Battle of Fredericksburg, although just tangentially. And then uh, after the Battle of Chancellorsville, um, he is uh, assigned to uh, the um, the Eleventh Corps Artillery um, because of the, the before Chancellorsville. Uh, I'm sorry. What you said? You said after, before Chancellorsville. Yeah, yeah, right. But but right. yeah, before the Battle of Chancellorsville. But right. he doesn't really get in much action there, and it's after mm-hmm. the battle that he really gets elevated because he's developed this reputation as this young and really detailed and very inspiring young officer who's who's able to inspire men, and so. Um, you know, the Union hierarchy is trying to bring in good young officers that are going to bring up this 11th Corps artillery, which had been pretty much decimated uh, and, uh, you know, and uh, hurt at Chancellorsville. And, and, and the 11th Corps in and of itself had been kind of, um, you know, d- despised after that, uh, Howard's cowards and the whole thing. And so he was part of this, he was part of the 11th Corps as it's leading then into Gettysburg. And um, doesn't like it, doesn't want to be there, thinks he's never going to get into a battle because of the reputation that the 11th Corps carries out of Chancellorsville. And so he's very much, by the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, 19 years old and full of vim and vigor and worried that he's not going to get into a heavy fight. And lo and behold, exactly the opposite happens on July 1st. Let me uh, flash back 
just a moment yeah. before we talk about that, and we'll, we'll take a break in just a minute and yeah. get to the battle itself. But you have a, an interesting short chapter on the engagement at Deserted House yeah. or Kelly's Store near Suffolk, yeah. Virginia, January 30, 1863. It's in the official records. It's a short after-action report. Uh, why this completely obscure skirmish uh, in your book? Because it was the first time that Union officers had... Um, that the Union hierarchy had noticed this young man and had singled him out as a, um, you know, as a, as a promising young officer, even though at that point I think he was 18 years old, and he distinguished himself there in, in one of the more forgettable moments of the war. But what really um, sort of, you know, warranted it for me in, in, in a way was it, on two points. One, it showed just the, the absolute chaos in in, in, uh, in how one stood out in battle. And, and the reason why he stood out in that battle was he was resolute. He kept his men together when everything else was chaotic around him. There were units that were running into each other and all sorts of things. Um, and so I thought it, it was a good illustration of sometimes sort of the futility of war that gets scrubbed away or the, the chaos of the moment that gets scrubbed away in, in histories of it. And the fact that he was distinguished in it, you know, he, he was singled out as a young officer to keep an eye on amidst all this kind of weirdness. Neither, neither you know, it was, it, was, it was an inconsequential battle. It was one of those things that just, you know, that happened sort of by chance. And, uh, but, but this is what propelled him through the Union hierarchy that ended up putting him on Barlow's Knoll in that very uh, important but exposed position on July 1st of 1863. Well, we'll take a short break here and come back, find out what happened uh, to Lieutenant Wilkinson and to the rest of uh, his battery and to his father at the Battle of Gettysburg. When we talk more with Chuck Rosh, our guest tonight, his book, Imperfect Union, A Father's Search for His Son in the Aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P 
O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Chuck Rosh, author of Imperfect Union, The Father's Search for His Son in the Aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg. We've talked about uh, the father, Sam Wilkinson, reporter for the New York Times, the New York Tribune before that. Uh, talked about his son, uh, Baird, who served uh, in an artillery battery at Chancellorsville. And now on July 1st, uh, we find him racing with uh, Howard's 11th Corps to get to the battlefield. Uh, listeners, you've all got your Gettysburg maps out. Do you recall that on the first day, Confederates are pushing back Buford and then the first Corps from the northeast, I mean, northwest rather, from, from north and east come uh, Ewell's troops and outflanking the Union Army. Howard's 11th Corps races north of Gettysburg to the open ground they're going to defend there. And they hope not to have the same debacle they suffered at Chancellorsville. Uh, that certainly must have been in, in young Wilkinson's mind at that point, uh, uh, as you describe in the book. Is that correct? Oh, definitely, yes. I, I, in fact, I think the men you know, knew it, uh, both he and, knew, uh, and the men around him knew it. There was no doubt about it. It was almost a perfect, I wouldn't say perfect, but it was pretty close to you know, the same situation, except they, they weren't surprised. They knew they were coming, but they knew they were outnumbered. And, um, you know, and so I think there was sort of a remember Chancellorsville feeling on both sides um, because, you know, the, that a lot of Ewell's men were also those that had rolled up, um, you know, the, um, the 11th Corps at Chancellorsville, too. And here they were poised again coming in uh, from the northeast, um, you know, in force, it, and, and at that point, at Barlow's Knoll in particular, they were outnumbering them, you know, three to one in artillery and probably two to one in men. So, so uh, Wilkinson's battery deploys on this really very slight rise of ground, uh, now yeah. called Barlow's Knoll, after the general who put the men there, and they defend the position. Uh, I'm, I'm debating how much uh, spoiler action to reveal <laughs> here, but but since the book really does does it right from the start, we'll say uh, yeah, it does not go well for the young man. No, um, it doesn't, and um, you know I like I don't know how much you want to get into the to the actual um, you know the fighting itself. He he makes a very heroic stand there. He and his his um, his battery make a very heroic stand there. Um, Howard later says that without it, they may not have held the, the seminary or cemetery ridge. They may not have held the high ground for the next three days. He, he makes the case to the father over the next couple of days. Um, but the point is, is that he's left there um, after that first day uh, behind enemy lines, and no one knows what's happened to him. He's gravely wounded. He basically loses a leg from a direct hit on his horse that goes through his horse, hits him in the leg, knocks off his um, his uh, right leg. And right after the right after the war, but in particular during the war, um, he's mythologized as as a figure. He becomes very famous, actually, um, as this young man who led men to hold the line as long as they could uh, to allow the Fifth Corps and others to come up and you know and reinforce on the Cemetery Ridge. And from that point, the Union Army was able to hold the high ground and, and win the Battle of Gettysburg. But the mythology is is that uh, he. Um, he t- actually takes his own knife and cuts off the remnants of his leg, which were just attached by tendon and a few bone and that sort of thing. And 
I, I, I went into the eyewitness accounts, and I went into a lot of the, um, the uh, correspondence that I could find of that time and whatever, and my story challenges the nature of that, which is actually the, that rendition of it, that telling of the story is on the, on the board, on the wall at the museum at the Gettysburg National Military hmm. Park. It's stated as fact that, and it even, I believe, even shows a picture of or, or, cop, or the actual knife itself that he's supposed to have used that. My book challenges that and says the mythology that was built up around this young man was largely false. Um, um, but it also says that the real story, the truth of what happened to him, which I parse out very carefully, I think, and, and, I, and I believe I've very much um, chronicled through new letters and other things that I've discovered through new accounts, um, really is a more compelling story. It's, I think it's a more true story of what happens in war. Um, it's a sadder story uh, than the mythology, but I don't think it diminishes the young man's sacrifice nor the, the heroism that he, he, uh, he, he exhibited that day on the battlefield. And so in that way, and, and, and I think you remember that this is sort of part of the exposition of the book, part of the, part of the jumping around a little bit in the book, is I, I sort of take on this whole idea of myth-making and why we desire to do that and why we have a need for that in the human existence. And I, I explain in that context, the concept of the good death and, the, and what it meant in the 19th century, but also our need to mythologize that. And, um, and I, I sort of I burst that bubble, I think. But as a, again, as I said earlier, I think the, the real story, what really happened to this young, young man, and you'll have to sort of read the book to find that out, I think is, is frankly a more compelling story than what the mythology is up on the wall in, at Gettysburg National Military Park. Well, he certainly is uh, uh, mythologized. You reproduce uh, Alfred Wad's yeah. uh, uh, war correspondent sketch of a yeah. young man on his horse, with the uh, uh, in the midst of his guns, of mm-hmm. his artillery firing, uh, looking heroic, and and you can see how he would mm-hmm. be a, a prime target in that condition. The 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 subtitle of the book talks about the father's search. Uh, yeah. Sam Wilkinson is also at the battle, yeah. uh, and not with his son. He's there separately as a war correspondent, and he's writing about it. Yeah. But he learns quickly enough that his son's unit uh, has been in action, and uh, his son is no longer with them. Right. So, so how how could he have gone about his business writing uh, what, as you pointed out earlier, is one of the yeah. most well-known dispatches of, of any battle in the Civil War uh, on, on yeah. as, as after the battle. How, how was he able to do that while knowing at the same time he had to go look, uh, he, he, he wanted to, to find his yeah. son? I think two things overcame him, and, and it came through both in his correspondence after the battle and and in his, in his writing about the battle, he, he filed two dispatches out of there, one sort of shorter one about here's really what happened, and then the, the, the greater one, the, the longer one, uh, several thousand words, which appears in the July 6th of, uh, edition of the New York Times. Um, I think in, in that moment, it, two things were going on with him. One was, by that time of the war, he was a, he was a, a very veteran observer of the war, and he... He had, he had invested his own sort of soul and morality and, frankly, his own being into the war. He'd, he'd made public declarations that it, that it would take whatever necessary to win this war for it to be the only successful outcome. There could be no two-country two solution. There could be no survival of, of, um, 
of, of slavery, the institution of slavery had to go. You know, he was an abolitionist. And so I think there was that part of it. The other part of it, if you read between the lines of his, and I, as, a, as a correspondent myself, I can understand sort mm-hmm. of how he came to this. Um, I, I think he saw it as a final sort of pay on to his son. I thought I'd attribute to his son of the sacrifices that he had seen there because he literally was standing with, uh, you know, up on the ridge when, when Pickett's charge came. He was within several hundred years. He was, he was, he was with Meade uh, at the Leicester House uh, that day when it was bombarded, it was ne- when several were nearly killed. Um, and so he was right in the middle of it. He'd seen it. And I think even, even though he did not know for two days whether his son was alive or dead, he wasn't able to start really start searching for him until the morning of July 4th. Um, I believe that he sort of summoned whatever he had left in him at that moment, in part both as a tribute to his son, but also to, as an honest witness to history. Because almost every single correspondent that came out of there, whether they wrote correctly or well or whatever, both, all of them came out of there believing that they had seen something that was, you know, both remarkable in its, in its, um, in its horror uh, but also remarkable in its history. At the same time, he he helps to create some of the history. He, he doesn't simply impartially say, "Here's what happened." Yeah. But he he shares his views freely. He 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 holds Howard and uh, specifically yeah. the division commander under Howard uh, Barlow, Barlow, yeah. uh, Francis Barlow, responsible for putting his son's battery forward in this indefensible position. Yeah. And uh, just as he he got in, involved with with Bernie after Seven Pines, now he's doing the same with Barlow and Howard. Yeah, he's mixing it up with them, but he only really does it in the one dispatch after the battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, compared, uh, rather than what he did with uh, Bernie after the Battle of Seven Pines, he mm-hmm. basically went home to his farm on up in New York, and I believe was suffering PTSD or some sort of uh, you know some sort of mental challenge. Um, mm-hmm. Psychological challenge, and just basically went home and I think slept for three or four months. Um, so, but there were initial exchanges and letters, and also the correspondence, where he very clearly said, you know, um, my where it was very clear that where my son was was a very bad position. And in fact, his son, as he's being carried off the battlefield, even though he's trying to buck his own men up remarks to one of his, his, um, his underlings, one of his subordinate officers, that it was a really poor choice to put a battery. Um, and so there is that. Um, and, um, you know, spinning forward a little bit, it, it's a really interesting story about what happens between Howard and Wilkeson then thereafter and how they kind of meandered around each other for the next 15 years and how that whole thing concluded. I don't want to give away too much of the book, but it's, it's, it's a really... I think it's, that's the human interest of this as well, too. And that's part of the point I was trying to make earlier is that when the guns go silent is, to me, when the real history starts. Mm-hmm. And that's when you, you progress forward into what happens to people's lives and how what happened in those awful moments, you know, those ultimate moments of Gettysburg and how it affected, you know, affected different people different ways. And uh, it, it, re- it frankly affected Sam Wilkson in, in, a, in a remarkable way. But... Back to your central question on this, I, I think he did, it was the two things. I think it was his sense of, of history, but also a tribute to his own son's sacrifice there, that he really needed to get this right. And, and, and something, you know, he, he was able to summon something at that moment that I think was actually quite remarkable. 
the the family saga doesn't end there because uh, there's another son, Frank, yeah. uh, who's younger still. Mm-hmm. But by 1864, he's old enough to enlist, and it, it's quite enlightening to see what a different military experience he has. He, uh, he writes what I think is ends up years later after seeing all the generals write about what they accomplished on the battlefield. He wrote what I think is the best um, rank and file, what it was like to be in the Union Army uh, book about it. it it's, it's a really remarkable book, um, and it's... Um, it is very unvarnished, and his point is is that you know you're going to read in history all of the great you know exploits of all the heroes and what what great and grand men of the Union Army were out there fighting slavery. And he, in reality, the unit he joins about two thirds of them are bounty jumpers, um, and uh, you know and uh, and scalawags. He's he's the first night he's in in this unit he joins. It's a New York unit. Um, He's, he's robbed of every possession he's got, um, you know, thieves and all sorts of things. And he, he really tells it from the granular level. He tells it from the bottom up. There's a great scene in his book about uh, uh, soldiers at the Battle of Wil- the Wilderness in 1864 k- kicking around the skulls of men um, who were killed at Chancellorsville, you know, a year <laughs> earlier. And um, he, he, it's a really, really, and, and he's a very good writer. He's, he's as good a writer as his father is. Uh, and he's a, someone of a free spirit, but he, he joins the army because he sees, you know, he's he's angry, um, and mm-hmm. he sees what, you know, what what it's done to his family. And I think he just he's 16 years old when he joins, and he just joins it out of anger. Well, and he certainly it, it points out what a different army the Army of of the Potomac was by 1864. Yeah. say filled with bounty jumpers and yep. conscripts, whereas the the army that uh, the older brother enlisted in, yep. volunteered for, was, was much more uh, idealistic and, and patriotic in their motives to join. Right. So you, you get a, you see what war has done to the army just as you see what it's done to the family, what it's done to these individuals. Yep. Um, certainly, the, the if there's one thing that emerges from this book, uh, uh, chapter after chapter, is a, a very strong statement about the, the malignant power of war. Oh, absolutely, and I, I one dispatch in general about a year after Gettysburg, um, and I note that Sam Wilkinson I think takes that um, that point, and and he he focuses more on the malignancy of war afterwards. He by eighteen sixty four, middle of eighteen sixty four, eighteen sixty five, there was a feeling among the war correspondents that the North was winning, um, but that there also was a feeling that Grant had at the same time that it was going to take. A year, basically, a year of attrition and horror to do it. Uh, you know that to me, that's that was Grant's great genius, um, um, in in the sense that he he recognized that and 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 just decided to go full bore into it. Um, you know, he's been second guessed and 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 deplored for it, but um, you know, but also praised for it. But but by the time 1864 arrives and Sam Wilson's back, and he's actually back working for the for Greeley in the Tribune again. He's spending all, a lot of his time, not on the battlefields, but in the hospitals, um, and writing about the conditions in the hospitals and how deplorable it remains even the third year in the war and, and what would happen to the men and whatever. And, and so I think that's his own segue from, you know, from, an, from, a, um, from a bitter end in the beginning of the war and, and w- at whatever cost to focusing on the end of the war at that actual cost in, in, in lives and uh, even in lives it, of the survivors. It, it is a... a 
a powerful story. Unfortunately, we have segued to the end of our time here, so we'll have to leave it with that. Listeners, it's a uh, a, a very different uh, and, and unique look at the Battle of Gettysburg through the eyes of two uh, important characters. The title, Imperfect Union, A Father's Search for His Son in the Aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg. The author is Chuck Rosh. Chuck, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. I appreciate it, and they were great questions. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.